I want to mention a Promise Keepers Pastors Conference, not just a conference for people, but for pastors. It was held in Phoenix, Arizona in 2003. A major theme of that conference was that denominationalism is sin. Denominationalism means having a denomination like the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the Methodist Church, the Baptist Church, various different churches. That is sin. That was the message that was being conveyed to the pastors at that convention. Now, the first Promise Keepers Pastors Convention was held seven years previous to that in Atlanta, Georgia. And at that time, there were two major evangelical groups that were not on board, that were holding their full loyalties and sympathies from that unity agenda. Those two were the 15 million member Southern Baptist Convention and perhaps the largest growing segment of contemporary Christianity, the charismatic Pentecostal churches. They were holding back their full endorsement seven years previous to that in Atlanta. But in 2003 in Phoenix, Arizona, it was patently clear that they were firmly on board. They were now wanting the same thing that all of the others were wanting. There was a fascinating technique at this Promise Keepers con Convention designed to bring support for their agenda, the frequent use of music to diminish inhibitions and subordinate doctrinal concepts to the unquestioned mandate for Christian unity. It was used often and it was used effectively. And the Phoenix Conference featured both increased musical volume and more sophisticated Christian rock than was heard at Atlanta. They were learning in those seven years how to reach the minds and set a tone and make it work. By the way, Promise 6 of the Movement 7 founding principle says, reaching beyond any racial and denominational barriers to demonstrate the power of biblical unity. You see, for such advocates, denominational distinctiveness makes just as little sense as racial barriers. Both must be erased. The pressure to ignore doctrinal issues and differences to achieve Christian unity is growing very, very strong. When Pope John Paul was alive in a Christmas address of his, he said all religions need to come together to outlaw all forms of intolerance and discrimination. Sounds good. But then you put that in context of Pope Pius IX on December of 1864, cursed be those who assert liberty of conscience and of worship and such that maintain that the church may not employ force. Which do we choose to believe? Which message? Put that again in context of President John F. Kennedy in 1960. I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president should he be Catholic how to act, and no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote, where no church or church school is granted any public funds or political preference. Have times changed since 1960? 
I found an interesting statement from Margaret Thatcher, former Prime Minister of Britain. Ideally, when Christians meet as Christians to take counsel together, their purpose is not, nor should not be, to ascertain what is the mind of the majority, but what is the mind of the Holy Spirit, something which may be quite different. No majority, she said, can ever take away God-given human rights. Democracy most effectively safeguards the value of the individual and more than any other system restrains the abuse of power by the few, and that is a Christian concept. Some very influential people have understood issues very well, haven't they? But they've kind of gotten lost in the shuffle, all of a sudden getting covered up by a lot of rhetoric and a lot of movement and a lot of enthusiasm. The Vatican issued a new set of guidelines for Catholic politicians, reminding them to heed the Church's non-negotiable teachings on abortion, euthanasia, same-sex marriage, and other issues when making public policy. So we have received many calls for unity from both Protestant and Catholic sources, and we're hearing them constantly. But you know what? The Catholic appeals are always tempered by the assertion that only the Catholic Church is the final voice on doctrine and policy, a slight different emphasis. A few years ago, we found out that there was a charter in Europe called the Charter Ecumenica, the European Ecumenical Charter, in which the ecumenists hope to bring all of the churches in Europe under one banner, under one focus sponsored by two organizations, the European Council of Churches and the Roman Catholic Bishops' Conference of Europe. The most interesting thing of this is that both the Dutch Union of Seventh-day Adventists and the Belgium Conference of Seventh-day Adventists have signed this ecumenical charter. Strange things are happening in our world and in our church that wouldn't have occurred a number of years ago. Well, the ecumenical movement has been a reality of our lives for a number of years. We've heard appeals to come together, to forget our differences. But now a new reality has been coming on the scene in the last decade. I found an interesting thing in 1096 A.D. The Pope summoned all Christian churches to take Palestine from the Mohammedans because the people believed that since a millennium had passed, since the book of Revelation, the times were right for the chaining of Satan and the descent of the holy city. That was 1096. The millennium has come. It is time to get things right, and we must take back Palestine from the Mohammedans. Any similarities as we have crossed the second millennial divide? as we have now come to the second millennium of the Christian era? Is it coincidental that something similar is occurring at this millennial divide? Gripping the sides of the lectern, the evening's guest of honor leaned forward. Are there any theologians out there? He barked in guttural, heavily accented English. Listen to me. I have the correct theology. I will teach you what is correct. So the octogenarian Reverend Dr. Sun Myung Moon launched into his keynote address. He declared that it is now America's role as the second Israel to lead out in building the kingdom of heaven in earth and in heaven. He said, for the sake of America, the founders of the four great world religions have, centering on Jesus, each chosen 120 of their historically famous disciples. 
Now, to the best of my knowledge, there's only one of the founder of the four world religions alive today. But here we have the founders, he said, of the four great world religions, each choosing 120 of their historically famous disciples, and then each of the attendees of that conference were given a bound transcript of what purported to be the report on the seminar in the spirit world. That's where this was taking place. The founders of the four great world religions bringing together their disciples and now transmitting the results of that spirit world conference for the people in the United States to understand and accept and be part of. By the way, in this spirit conference, the master of ceremonies was the prophet Muhammad and the representative prayer was offered by Jesus Christ. So what we're dealing with here is purportedly a direct communication from the spirit world as to how we should relate to our world today and what we should do. Does that remind us of Great Controversy, page 588? As spiritualism more closely imitates the nominal Christianity of the day, as the spirits will profess faith in the Bible and maintain respect, manifest respect for the institutions of the church, their work will be accepted as a manifestation of divine power. Shouldn't that remind us? This is direct. This is no longer under the table. This is a bound transcript of statements made by the leaders of the great world religions. And we are being told that we need to understand that. Today, even the spirit world seems to be confirming the role of the United States as the savior of the world. Our country is now being seen as the Christian nation designed by God to protect his people. And of course, that people is Israel. At a recent Christian Coalition Road to Victory conference, Israel was the top of the agenda with generous support for not only its religious ideals but its political activities. Many were shouting, we do not believe in the separation of church and state. Like former Chief Justice Rehnquist, they are quick to see that as an outmoded metaphor. They have conjured up from history a nation established consciously and structurally to advance and protect the Christian faith only. And all too many Seventh-day Adventists have uncritically repeated those historical assertions of this view that this is a Christian nation designed by God to promote the Christian faith only. And if we question it, we are called both unchristian and, by extension, un-American. Way back, the U.S. Treaty of Tripoli, signed in 1796, stated that the government of the United States of America is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. Now, that is not to say it doesn't have Christian values, that it is founded on values that are biblical, but it's saying that it is not founded on the Christian religion. And it's pretty easy to show as you go back into our history, the deist, Masonic, and Enlightenment intentions of our founders. They wanted to protect our nation from control from any religion. And they intended a structurally secular state giving constitutional guarantees for all faiths, for all to worship as they wanted to.
And I'm afraid that Seventh-day Adventists in North America may soon have to make rather momentous mental adjustments. Like most of our fellow Christians, we have grown comfortable, very comfortable, with the notion that this nation was not only a protector of religious freedom, but that it is by nature part of our Christian security. It protects me as a Christian. Legislators, for instance, who hesitated to vote for the Patriot Act were accused of being un-American and aiding the enemy. Christians who deplore the rush to tear down the First Amendment are already being marginalized as not quite Christian, and we are well on the road to legally defining this nation as a Christian state. They tried that back in 1906. The International Reform Bureau was calling for a constitutional amendment to declare the United States a Christian nation. And today, we are witnessing calls again for a formal designation as a Christian nation over opposition that there is a wall between church and state. Suspicion of non-mainstream Christian activities is involved in that. I think we're going to have to be very attentive these days to God's word to remain immune to the taunts of fellow Christians caught up in the passional fires of national fulfillment, the nation and the church being one and the same. And especially now, since 9-11, September 11, 2001, clearly ushering in a new era. Some have called it a hinge of history, and it very well may be a hinge on which history turns. But you know, that day really didn't change things as much as reveal things. A catalyst showing what was under the surface all along. Religious liberty has long struggled against complacency. One said, we have reached the point that the idea of liberty, an idea relatively recent and new, is already in the process of fading from our consciences and our standards of morality. Is it fading? Are we complacent? We have been told, for instance, that the war against terrorism will last a lifetime. To many in our society, it already seems necessary, vital, to give up freedoms because that we must defeat the enemy at all costs, an enemy that is equated more and more with religious zealotry. Listen to the FBI declaring one of the hallmarks to be watched and feared, those who believe in the imminent literal return of Jesus Christ. Today there are trends that blur the separation between church and state. Faith-based initiatives by presidential order, voucher funding of church schools approved by the Supreme Court, calls for a constitutional amendment to designate America as a Christian nation, growing agitation to pass houses of worship legislation that would empower churches as political power bases, widespread dismissal of separation of church and state as an outmoded metaphor. And so far, our Seventh-day Adventist response to this clear and present threat to religious liberty is very lethargic. We're not saying much. In the face of this larger national threat that we're all a bit afraid of from terrorism, we too have been willing to sacrifice liberty for the sake of national security. 
Perhaps shotgun marriages don't work any better in the political realm, though, than they do in the personal realm. I'm afraid that there is a darkness in the soul of American Christianity. The almost unquestioning acceptance, even the celebration of our Americanness, and the tragic militaristic attitudes and history associated with that. There is a jarring correlation too readily drawn between Christianity and American patriotism. And sadly, this is a darkness with which American Adventism is similarly afflicted. Author Tony Campolo said, I contend that we have reached a stage of idolatry when in any given church in America you're going to run into more trouble if you remove the American flag than if you remove the cross. To unquestionably equate Christianity with Americanness also equates in the eyes of the wider world Christianity with the military campaigns, the corporations, the economic policies, the cultural things, and the absurd consumerism that we should be speaking out against. They see us as identifying that with Christianity. The challenge, I think, is to readjust the balance in American Christian between the American and the Christian. The terms are not synonymous. We must be primarily Christians and only ever secondarily citizens of a country. We need to rethink some things. And perhaps it is best for us to go right back to some counsel which we have forgotten and which we are neglecting. Inspired counsel. The Lord would have his people bury political questions. On these themes, silence is eloquence. We cannot with safety vote for political parties, for we do not know whom we are voting for. We cannot labor to please men who will use their influence to repress religious liberty. The people of God are not to vote to place such men in office. Listen next. For when they do this, they are partakers with them of the sins which they commit while in office. Has that one gotten buried in the writings of the Spirit of Prophecy? Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 475. The entire chapter deals with our relationship with the government. Yes, Caesar has a realm, but let us not invade the realm of God. The realm of God always takes priority, and we must never break that barrier down. You know, this religious political marriage in the United States is mirrored very well and even much further in the Islamic community. Let's talk about that for just a little bit. Killing the infidels, well, that's Jews and Christians like us, of course, is a good thing that will get you to heaven. That comes from Osama bin Laden on one of his messages. Killing the infidels will get you to heaven. With very few exceptions, the rank-and-file terrorists who join the martyr brigades and blow themselves up to take out other infidels are trying to attain salvation. This is not just political. Even mainline non-terrorist Islam is a religion based on works righteousness. 
Escaping hell and attaining paradise is a matter of doing enough good works. In the judgment, according to one Islamic authority, one's deeds are weighed in a balance. Those who have done more good deeds than bad will go to paradise. Those whose bad deeds outweigh the good go to eternal punishment. There is, however, an exception, a gospel, a way out if your deeds are overbalanced on the wrong side. There is a solution. Those who die as martyrs, those who die while waging jihad, holy war against the enemies of God, will enter paradise instantly, all their sins washed away by their own blood and the blood of the infidels they have shed. Those who have grown up under the restrictions, and there are many restrictions in a Muslim country, and then come to the morally decadent post-Christian West often fall into serious sin. You see, their sinful flesh is the same as anyone's sinful flesh, ours, but no longer under control by external restrictions as they had in their country. Those who come from a society where women are covered from head to toe in an attempt to make it impossible for men to lust after them, now with few inner controls to deal with that, find themselves ogling the flesh-bearing fashions favored by many Western women and enjoying the sex-saturated entertainment industry, and they sin, but they still believe, which results in enormous guilt and fear. You see, Islam has no mediator, no intercessor. They have no sacrifice to atone for what they have done. Muslim theologians specifically teach that there is no assurance of salvation that one can never know until the last day whether he is worthy to enter paradise. Muhammad Atta leader of the 9-11 terrorists when he came to study at Hamburg, Germany, reportedly developed a serious pornography addiction. This was when he started attending the radical mosque where he heard the gospel of jihad. His terrorist colleagues in the days before 9-11 frequented strip clubs, buying lap dances, drinking alcohol, any one of which earns them eternal damnation. But according to writings found after the attacks, they were confident in their salvation. By crashing those airplanes and murdering thousands, they were offering up human sacrifices and atoning for their sins. Our Muslim adversaries are true believers in their theology, you see. They are confident in their religion for which they are eager to die. They want salvation as much as we do. They want eternal life also. Muslims, you see, consider Christianity a very weak religion. They witness the moral bankruptcy of the Western world and say, that's what Christianity produces. We have a better way. Muslim terrorists, my friends, are simply sinners in the hands of an angry God desperate for salvation. The true uniting of church and state in one, one unit. Are you very, very thankful, my friends, for the gospel of justification by faith? Do you realize how precious that gospel is? No other world religion has it. We've just focused on one world religion. No other world religion has the gospel of the atonement and justification as a free gift of a loving Savior.
Are you really thankful for that or do you take it for granted and assume it's okay because that's just the way it is? Let's look at a text or two just to remind ourselves. Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Verses 1 and 2. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Blessed. Do we cherish that blessing? Do we realize how precious it is that when we slip, when we fall, when we make a mistake, when guilt enters our heart, we don't have to go out and do tremendous penance. We don't have to go into far countries. We don't have to destroy the enemies of God. We can fall on our knees and Jesus will forgive us on the spot. Do we realize the preciousness of forgiveness? with a Savior who loves us. Turn to the book of Habakkuk. Classic, classic text. The basis of the entire Reformation. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. What is that basic premise of the Reformation? The just shall live by good deeds. No, my friends. The just shall live by his faith. Faith in the promises of a loving God. No one has ever been able to stand confidently without guilt before God except on the basis of faith in something other than his own merit, something other than his own activities. Every man or woman who has transgressed God's holy law is condemned to die, and because of that the only escape from condemnation is pardon, not political action, either in the countries of the East or in our United States of America. Our nation will not be pardoned from its sins by political action. But we want to justify ourselves. Isn't that the most deeply rooted thing in the human nature to justify self? I'm right and you're wrong. My way is right. We have fashioned a very corrupt and even pagan effort to appease the wrath of God with worthy acts of devotion. We will do something better. And we're self-righteous at heart. We want to justify our way of doing things. Rare is the person who is willing to admit that he or she is wrong. Just plain wrong. That's rare. We want to improve our image. It's always image. It's always how we look. It's always how we want people to see us. Justification by faith requires, requires the admission of human failure and faultiness. And that's why it's so hard for the human mind to get around that concept. Human failure and faultiness. I think every broken marriage, I think every political or international conflict is always about me first and you second. I am right is the battle cry of the Pharisee because we don't want rebuke. I am right. And so we are faced with two systems, righteousness by faith and righteousness by works. They are the two systems. One grows out of the stupendous generosity of God to the penitent. The second, out of the refusal of humanity to admit that he is wrong. 
Blessed is the person whose transgression is forgiven, and miserable is the person who must always appear right. One last thought I want to share with you. This was written by Ellen White in January 1, 1889, in the Review and Herald, talking about events of that time that are very similar to events in our time. Protestants today are a self-sufficient, world-loving people, but they must have some religion and prefer that consisting of forms and outward display rather than the simplicity of the true religion of Jesus Christ. Do we tend to want that too? The forms and the display tell us that we're doing okay. While the Protestant world is, by her attitude, making concessions to Rome, we should arouse to comprehend the situation and view the contest before us in its true bearing. We need the spirit of true Protestantism to awaken all the world to a sense of the value of the privileges of religious liberty so long enjoyed. This nation has been highly favored of God. It has been the great center of religious light and liberty. We have lost much time in inaction because we have not realized the time in which we are living. Many have chosen to do nothing when they should have been diligent to repulse the enemy. It is essential that we be much in prayer to God, that His voice and His power may be manifested in behalf of His people, and that the angels may hold the four winds until the truth is more fully proclaimed and the servants of God are sealed in their foreheads. God is not pleased with the attitude of His people. Satan is taking the world captive, and the sentinels of God and the truth are letting him do it. We need reproof like that now and then, don't we? We need to realize what our business is.